Hi everyone, my name is Drew Ray and this is episode 19 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. Have you ever noticed that very few people get hurt during the design of a system? From precarious assembly-at-home microlight aircraft to the world's most awesome superweapons, the hazards that can actually occur at design time are those of a typical office environment. Power sockets, trips, falls and repetitive strain injury. Our safety effort during this time is all predictive. We don't usually call it prediction, but that's what modelling, analysis and engineering judgement ultimately are. We're trying to anticipate, imagine and control a future world. And even though it's easy to be cynical about the competence and diligence of people in charge of dangerous systems, I really don't think there are evil masterminds out there authorising systems in the genuine belief that they are not safe. At the time a plant is commissioned or a product is released, there's a mountain of argument and evidence supporting the belief of the designers, the testers, the customers and the regulators that the system is safe. Why, then, do accidents happen? That's what this episode is about. We'll look at some of the possible reasons and how to manage them, then discuss an accident, the disaster that befell Alaska Airlines Flight 261. Just in case you've got a flight to catch afterwards... We'll reset our personal risk meters by discussing an alternate way to travel. The transporters and teleportation devices from Star Trek and similar sci-fi experiences. We specify a system. We design the system. We test it. We conduct safety assurance through the whole process. We convince ourselves, and other people, that we've done what we need to do to make the system safe. Why does an accident still happen? There are really only a few possible reasons. The first explanation is very simple. Everyone who thought the system was safe were wrong. It could be that a hazard was missed or was misunderstood. It could be that the design was faulty and the analysis failed to reveal the flaws. Whatever the reason, the system was never going to be as safe as everyone thought it was. The second explanation is that the system would have been safe but only if used in certain ways in certain environments. It turned out that the designers made assumptions and predictions that didn't come true. It could be that they thought the system would be exposed to cold, damp climates, and it was actually used in the desert. It could be that the system was linked to other systems that hadn't even been thought of when the original system was designed. Maybe the operators didn't follow instructions, or maybe the instructions didn't cover what the operators were trying to do. The third explanation is that the system was safe, but it became unsafe. It wasn't looked after. It wasn't maintained correctly. This is really a specialised case of the previous explanation, if you consider the way a system is maintained to be part of how it's used. The fourth explanation is that the system that they designed was safe, but the system at the time of the accident was actually a different system. The system was changed, and in the process of changing, they broke the things that made it safe. Four simple explanations, but here's the rub. All four explanations are already true for every real system. No safety analysis is 100% correct or complete. Systems always encounter unexpected environments and are used in unintended ways. Perfect maintenance only occurs as an assumption in reliability calculations. It isn't something that actually happens in the real world. Change is. Systems that appear at first to be safe will be unsafe. There's really only one question. 
Who will find out first? Will it be those charged with its safety, or will it be the universe? Because when the universe finds out first, it will let us know in a very unfriendly way. Through life safety, then, is not a matter of reviewing safety documents every few years to check if a system is still safe. The system is unsafe, and the evidence that it's not is not just going to fall into your lap unless you're looking for it. That's why operational safety starts with the designers. You can pick up someone else's safety analysis and fully understand the outcomes, but once a system has entered service, those previous conclusions about safety are irrelevant. What you care about are the inputs to the safety assessment. The assumptions, the scope restrictions, the tentative data. Every assumption that a design or a safety analysis makes ultimately needs to stop being an assumption. Typically, it will turn into two separate obligations. One obligation to try to make the assumption come true, another to check whether or not it does become true. Let's try an example. I'm designing an automatic throttle with a manual backup. My safety argument is that if the automatic throttle misbehaves, the operator will switch to the backup. Can you see the assumptions here? I'm assuming that the operator can and will detect throttle misbehavior, and that they can and will use the backup. This means that I need to design a throttle such that misbehavior is easy to detect. I need to design operator training so that they can detect misbehavior. I need to analyze the human interface to be sure that the operator can reliably switch to the backup in reasonable time from when the misbehavior first occurs. Then I need my through life safety program to check this. I need to have a process in place for recording throttle misbehavior and for assessing how operators in real life handle this misbehavior. I need to monitor operator training and make sure that they know what to do and why. I need to collect data on how often the backup system is used and whether switching to the backup in fact is still a safe thing to do. If any changes are made to the auto throttle, I need to examine these changes to see if the manual backup is still the right safety solution. I need to be actively listening for accidents and incidents involving auto throttles and considering their relevance to my own system. In particular, if I ever hear of an incident where a manual backup wasn't used or couldn't be used, I need to consider this as counter evidence to my own safety argument. Compare these needs to what actually happens in many organizations. Frontline repair staff have a form to fill out recording the nature of failures and any safety impact. But those staff don't know what the hazards are. Very often the failures they're recording don't actually appear anywhere on the fault trees or FMEAs that make up the safety analysis, simply because they're using different language. As a rough comparison, imagine you go to the doctor with a slight cough. A cough could be a symptom of a dust allergy, or it could be a sign of imminent heart failure. You expect the doctor to balance the worst case explanation with the most likely explanation. They can't send you for a detailed examination every time you have a cough, but they can't just assume that every cough is insignificant either. The need to make this sort of judgment is why the person telling you to go home and take two Panadol requires over eight years of academic and on-the-job training, along with constant professional development. With aircraft, railways and power plants, the frontline maintainer is worried about the most likely explanation, whilst the safety engineer is worried about the worst case explanation. Competing priorities 
with very different information needs. It isn't that the maintainer doesn't care about alternate explanations. It's that unless they're told what to look for and when, they can't act appropriately on that concern. We could give them many years of graduate and postgraduate training, or we could design a system that lets them do the job they are good at, but still collects the right information to test our predictions about safety. Hopefully this makes it obvious that let's hold a review every two years doesn't cut it as a through-life safety strategy. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear to be that obvious. Time for an accident case study. The official report for this episode's accident is titled Loss of Control and Impact with Pacific Ocean Alaska Airlines Flight 261 McDonnell Douglas MD-83 N263AS about 2.7 miles north of Anacapa Island, California, January 31st, 2000. Whilst all those docudramas make accident investigators seem glamorous and exciting, clearly none of them moonlight as thriller writers. If a novelist was writing the accident report, they'd call it something like Plunge into the Pacific, or maybe something a bit more cryptic, such as The Screw Turns. Flight 261 was a regularly scheduled passenger trip from Mexico to Seattle via California. Sometime into the flight, the flight crew contacted their dispatch and maintenance controllers to discuss the fact that their horizontal stabiliser was not operating correctly, and that it was possibly jammed. They requested a diversion to Los Angeles and received a fair bit of pushback from the controllers for operational reasons. Ultimately, though, the ground staff agreed to a Los Angeles landing when it became clear that the pilot was pretty concerned about the safety of the aircraft. The flight crew discussed the problem with a ground mechanic and they attempted to move the stuck stabiliser, which triggered an unexpected dive lasting 80 seconds and 7,000 feet. During this time, the pilot reported that he'd lost pitch control he didn't have any ability to point the nose of the aircraft up or down where he wanted it. The pilots recovered from this dive, but it was clear that their attempt to fix the problem had made things much worse. The captain wanted to continue to troubleshoot in order to get the aircraft flying well enough to attempt a landing. The first officer urged the captain to try a landing straight away, rather than do anything that might make the problem even worse. They were interrupted by a series of loud bangs. After that final noise, the aircraft nose began to drop at 25 degrees a second, and the plane rolled until it was fully inverted. There was a brief moment of comic relief, as the pilot realised that the plane was actually flying better upside down than it had been the right way up. Then the engine stalled, and flight AA-261 crashed into the Pacific Ocean. The MD-80 design was 20 years old at the time of the accident, and its structure and systems were mostly similar to the DC-9, which had entered service in 1965. The particular airframe was younger, but it still wasn't a spring chicken. It was eight years old, and had completed over 14,000 flights. Pitch control on the DC-9 and the MD-80 is achieved through horizontal stabilisers, which look like two little wings attached to the vertical tail of the aircraft. Quick, short-term adjustments are made using elevators which lift up or down on the back of these wings. But if the elevators stay on too long, the angle of the stabilisers themselves gets changed. This is the bit that failed. The stabilisers were wound up and down with a motorised jack screw. In case you've never seen one, 
This is quite literally just a giant screw, of the same sort you use to adjust the legs on your fridge, or the height of an adjustable desk. The previous aircraft design, the DC-8, had two separate jack screws to provide structural redundancy. The DC-9 and MD-80 had just one jack screw assembly, with a torque tube inside an Acme screw. I'm not going to be able to paint a word picture that lets you visualise this perfectly. So let's just get to the point. The jack screw was certified to be safe on the basis of a new intact screw and nut that met design specifications with intact and engaged threads. The only time this was ever going to be a successful basis for safety was at the exact moment each airframe was commissioned. Not a problem, according to the FAA senior certification engineer testifying at the public hearing afterwards, because where is, quote, not considered as a mode of failure for either a system safety analysis or for structural considerations. In other words, the nut wearing out would be a through-life safety issue, not a design safety issue. Here's a little clue about good safety practices. Sometimes we talk about design safety and through-life safety as if they are separate issues. This is a shorthand to make sure people think about both. It isn't because the two are supposed to be separate magisteria, subject to separate management, regulation and certification. It was the design of the aircraft that made the failure of this one single nut enough to crash the plane. It was a design choice to have one jack screw instead of two. It was in fact the design regulations that made them put two separate threads on the screw part of the assembly, because it was a structural component, but only one thread on the nut, because it was not a structural component. Here's another little clue about good safety practices. If the regulations tell you that a screw needs two independent thread spirals, but the nut attached to that screw, made out of softer material, needs only one thread spiral because it officially doesn't count, then you need to stop paying attention to the regulations and start paying attention to your brain. It may in fact be possible to follow the regulations and be safe, but one doesn't necessarily imply the other. Now at this point you may think you know where this story's headed. You're probably right, but we've got a bit of a journey to get there. You see, this design decision was made back in 1965. The accident happened in 2000. Despite designing the jack screw nut as a wear component, not a structural component, it didn't occur to anyone to inspect the assembly regularly for wear. Fortunately, after a year of flying, excessive wear of the nuts and screws was noticed anyway, and so regular checks were put in place. Fast forward to 1980, in the introduction of the MD-80, a variant of the DC-9 that contained the same jack screw assembly. The basis for maintenance of an aircraft introduced at this time was an industry document called MSG-2. MSG-2 said that a maintenance review board, or MRB, would determine the minimum set of maintenance and inspection activities for each type of aircraft. Based on this MRB, the aircraft manufacturer would issue a maintenance planning document and a set of task cards for each maintenance activity. 
there were two critical activities relating to the jack screw. The first was lubricating the screw and nut to reduce thread wear. The second was testing the assembly to determine if wear had occurred. The original certification documents recommended lubrication every 300 to 350 flight hours. By the time the maintenance planning document was, was released, it required 600 to 900 flight hours. Based on the planning document, Alaska Airlines conducted three different packages of tasks called A-check, B-check, and C-check. The lubrication was part of every second B-check, which in 1985 was every 700 flight hours, right in line with the regulations. In 1988, the B-check package was broken up, and lubrication became part of every eighth A-check, or every thousand flight hours. Then A-check intervals were extended, and the lubrication happened every 1,200, then every 1,600 hours. Eventually, lubrication was removed from the A-check altogether, and put onto a monthly time card, instead of being based on flight hours. Given the way the aircraft were used, this worked out to every 2,550 flight hours. Meanwhile, the official recommended interval had also stretched out to 3,600 flight hours, 10 times the original recommended interval. The main basis for the change was a change in regulation guidance. In fact, the earlier 600 to 900 hour limit was not even considered during this update, and the design engineers were not consulted. The lubrication was part of a package of tasks called the C-check, and the update didn't involve a task-by-task -task analysis of the package. Intervals are not the whole story here. Alaska Airlines had also changed the type of grease used as lubrication. McDonnell Douglas had advised that they had no technical objection to the change, with one important caveat. The new type of grease was less resistant to being washed away, and so this could have had an impact on how often lubrication needed to be applied. The FAA was notified of the change, but under rules at the time the change did not need to be justified. In a spectacular piece of stable door bureaucracy, after the accident, the FAA demanded justification and then disapproved the use of the different grease on the basis of not enough justification. Measuring the wear follows a similar story. The procedure here was called an end play check. Essentially, it measured the difference between the thread on the Acme nut, which would wear away, and the thread on the Acme screw, which wouldn't. Using this check, excessive wear had been found on several fairly new DC-9s in 1984. The cause in each case seemed to be inadequate lubrication, so McDonnell Douglas reminded all the operators about the importance of the 600-hour lubrication check. In 1990, McDonnell Douglas again became concerned about the problem on both DC-9s and MD-80s, and again reminded the operators about the lubrication. The end-play check procedure required a special tool. Alaska Airlines had exactly one of these, which may have been built themselves, although they dispute that finding. Certainly, it wasn't even close to the engineering drawings of the correct tool. When tools of that type were tested after the accident, they were found to underestimate the amount of wear compared to the official tool. The original checking procedure 
was to be conducted every 3,600 hours. By the time of the accident, the recommendation was every 7,200 hours or 30 months, whichever came first. Alaska Airlines was checking every 30 months, but this was around 10,000 flight hours. Too late to cut a long story short, so instead, let me sum up. The DC-9 and MD-80 were designed such that the safety of the aircraft depended on a single Acme nut not wearing out. Throughout the life of both aircraft, there was considerable evidence that despite the maintenance instructions, the nuts were not always properly being lubricated, and they were wearing out more rapidly than expected. Alaska Airlines stretched the time periods for both lubrication and inspection. These periods were extremely long compared to the original recommendations, but they weren't out of line compared to the updated official recommendations. Unfortunately, the updated official recommendations had no task-by-task input from either the original recommendations or the design engineers. All this would be academic if it hadn't been for the very last end-play check in 1997. The inspector who conducted the measurement found that was right on the limit and ordered a replacement nut. They filled out the order form incorrectly and no replacement arrived. Three days later, the aircraft was overdue to return to service and a different maintainer saw that the measurement was on the limit, not over the limit. Just to be sure, he says, he reconducted the check and decided that the wear was acceptable. By the time of the accident, the investigators estimated that the thread on the nut was 90% worn, instead of the 25-30% to at which the nut should have been replaced. The remaining thread was unable to hold the load and broke off in flight, jamming the nut against the screw and stopping the stabiliser from moving. The first dive was caused by the pilots successfully unjamming the stabiliser. Instead of being back under control though, the screw just moved freely through the nut until it jammed in a new position. The unusual loading on the torque tube part of the assembly due to this failure caused it to crack, letting the whole stabiliser move to a normally impossible position, rendering the aircraft uncontrollable. The investigation, by the way, found that the reason that the thread was worn was that it hadn't been lubricated properly. They did not find that this was because of the long intervals between lubrication. The problem was that different maintainers following the same procedure for lubrication were doing very different things with very different effectiveness. If lubricated properly, the 3,600 hours between lubrications weren't actually too long. The trouble was, under the original recommendations, this would give 10 opportunities to get the lubrication right. With a long time between lubes, it only had to be done poorly once. The investigators actually watched a number of different maintainers do the procedure. They found that the small access panels made it hard to do the lubrication properly and to check that it had been done properly. This is a good example of why through life safety is an intrinsic part of design. The designers made an aircraft with a safety critical nut. They assumed that the nut would be lubricated and inspected. They did not design an easy way to lubricate the nut or an easy way to inspect it. They did not include as part of the aircraft 
a suitable tool for inspecting the nut. It was their job to help make their own assumptions come true. And they didn't do that. The operators and regulators likewise can't ignore design considerations when they conduct through life safety. That nut needed to be checked often, and the designers knew exactly why. Alaska Airlines decided to check it less often, and the FAA approved the change without properly understanding the hazard that they were exacerbating. They thought that maintenance records were sufficient evidence to make the change. Those records weren't enough without design understanding. The idea of a safety-critical nut may seem a little ridiculous, and it should be. Even back in the 1980s, when the MD-80 was type-approved, aircraft safety engineering was reasonably mature. The designers and regulators both agreed that the nut was allowed to be a single point of failure because it counted as a structure, not a system. They didn't include the nut wearing out in the structural analysis, though, because they couldn't quantify it. This is the sort of rules lawyering that belongs in a poorly played game of Dungeons and Dragons, not an engineering program. The designers could have added a failsafe or redundancy. Instead, they relied on procedures and training working perfectly in every maintenance facility of every airline flying the aircraft. The universe decided that their trust was poorly placed. In preparing for this episode, I've had to spend a lot of time reading about maintenance intervals and different types of oil. So to compensate, I'm going to do something a bit different in this final segment. I'm going to illustrate a particular method of hazard analysis called Hazard and Operability Studies, or HAZOP. And to make it interesting, I'll apply HAZOP to a novel technology, the transporter unit from Star Trek. If you've never seen any of the original series of Star Trek, or The Next Generation, or Deep Space Nine, or the even-numbered Star Trek movies, you're really missing out on an important cultural experience. Of course, that probably means you've managed to escape Star Trek Voyager, the odd-numbered movies, and J.J. Abrams' attempt to hide his disdain of Star Trek fandom behind too much lens flare, so I guess it kind of evens out. In any case, a transporter works like this. You're standing on the surface of a planet, and you want to be on a spaceship instead. You activate your communicator, which is just a Star Trek word for radio, and you say, Beam me up! A few seconds later, you disappear from the planet and appear back on the spaceship. It's a brilliant solution to Gene Roddenberry's original problem of not having enough left in the special effects budget to build shuttlecraft, and it's also a pretty cool way to travel. Devices similar to transporters are used in Doctor Who, called T-Porters, and a magical version called Apparition and Port Keys appears in the Harry Potter books and films, so you've probably seen something like it somewhere. Obviously, teleporting from one place to another is potentially dangerous, and both on-screen and off-screen teleporter accidents are used as a common plot device. How do we systematically make sure that we've covered everything that can go wrong with a teleporter. That's where a technique such as HAZOP can help. HAZOP originated in the chemical process industries and is a form of deviation analysis. It represents how a system is supposed to behave and then it considers lots of variations on that correct behaviour 
to see if they're dangerous. True to its origins, Hazop analysis starts by representing a system as a series of flows. Naturally, this works well if your system's full of fluid, but actually most systems have flow. It might be flow of energy, flow of people, or even just flow of information. As far as Hazop's concerned, the technology doesn't matter. It's just flow. In the case of the transporter, we have a single flow, which is a person moving from one place to another. This flow has three main properties. The person being moved, the de destination, and the speed of the transfer. Hazop then provides us with a list of guide words. In this case, the guide words we'll use are no, less, more, opposite, other than, and as well as. We'll apply these in turn to each of the properties. In each case, we'll consider both causes and consequences. So let's start with no. No destination and no person are pretty much the same thing. Our subject, instead of being transported, becomes lost in time and space. One possible cause is that our transporter is interrupted halfway. It successfully dematerializes someone, but fails to reconstruct them. This could also happen, for example, if no destination coordinates are set in the transporter. No applied to speed is something else altogether. Our subject remains at their point of origin. Not an immediate safety concern, until you consider that one of the main functions of transporters is to rescue people from dangerous situations. We say, beam me up, and a disembodied voice in a thick Scottish accent says something like, I kind of get a lock on the coordinates, Captain. The less guide word is where things get messy. Applied to the person, this was called splinching in the Harry Potter books. The subject arrives, but is missing part of their anatomy. This could be as minor as an eyebrow or as serious as an eyeball. Let's not overlook the chronic case, too. What if the transportation is 99.9% .9 complete? Fine if you're only being transported once, but that 0.1% can add up over time into acute cellular degradation, a sort of transported disease. Applied to the destination, less becomes even more scary as a guide word. Starships and planets are in constant relative motion, so transporter computers need to compensate for this. An incorrect calculation, or even a miscalibrated position sensor, and suddenly you've transported someone into space a few miles short of their destination. Applied to speed, less just means we have a sluggish transfer. This could be problematic if our safety model assumes that the transfer is effectively instantaneous. What about race conditions when the transport is occurring? Bits of debris could blow into the transporter field and arrive embedded in the subject. Or synchronisation could break down between the starship shields and the transporter, locking someone out of their own ship. Let's try the more guide word next. This is where we need to think about contamination. We successfully transport the subject, but something else comes along for the ride. It may be small, a bacteria or a virus, or it may be large, like an attached explosive device. I can't actually find any examples in the series for the opposite guide word. Opposite person and opposite speed don't make sense. 
so the logical interpretation is opposite location. The destination gets beamed to the source instead of the source to the destination. Since the destination is supposed to be empty, a backwards transport would appear to be an excellent precision weapon, overriding the target with thin air. As far as I can find out, this application hasn't been used, which leads me to suspect that it isn't physically possible in the Star Trek universe. So let's just annotate this part of the analysis with a big question mark, and seek expert guidance. The other than guide word gives us lots of possibilities. We could accidentally transform the person into a horribly disfigured lump of flesh. Or we could transform them into their evil twin, depending on the demands of the plot. We could transport them to a mirror universe, or to a different point in space and time. We could even remove their clothing, although that's more the realm of fan fiction than safety analysis. Finally, we have as well as. This is the one that really intrigues me about transporter technology. We could create a copy of the person, but leave a version of them behind at the point of origin. Or we could create two different new copies of the person, perfect test subjects for undergraduate psychology experiments. We could also attempt multiple transports at the same time, creating catastrophic matter collisions or humorous mind-body transfers. At the end of this HAZOP process, we have a list of different things that could go wrong. Some of them are minor, such as losing clothing or an eyebrow. Some are more serious, such as slow transfer or embedded debris. Some are fatal to the subject. And some could result in catastrophic loss of the whole starship. We can then use this information to design better transporters. At various times, the Star Trek canon refers to biofilters to stop transported microorganisms, buffers to prevent losses and mitigate the effective delays, safety interlocks to prevent multiple simultaneous transports, and energy fields to preserve integrity during the moment of transfer. We can also use the information to create protocols and procedures for operating transporters. We might decide that beaming should only be undertaken at certain speeds, or above a certain chance of success. We might provide shuttles as a backup means of transportation, for times when transporters are unsuitable. Or maybe just to accommodate the understandable phobia generated in anyone who thinks closely about transporter safety, or the metaphysical implications of destroying your own body and making it reappear somewhere else. That's just about it for this episode of DisasterCast. If you'd like to support the show, the best thing you can do is promote it through your own organisations and networks. In particular, if you're involved in safety training or teaching, please do mention the podcast and transcripts. You could even follow the example of Kansas State University, where particular episodes of DisasterCast are now listed as course reading for their high assurance lectures. Like many podcasters, I track my traffic pretty carefully. So I'd like to give a shout out to a few people in the community who've sent listeners to DisasterCast. James Inge coordinates the IET Safety Community, which supports a number of events, often in collaboration with the Safety Critical Systems Club. There's a particularly interesting looking seminar on transferable safety in London on December the 5th. Matthew Square publishes an excellent safety blog called Critical Uncertainties at criticaluncertainties.com. He collates interesting pieces from around the web 
and writes some pretty thought-provoking articles of his own. If you're listening to this shortly after publication, the next episode will be released on Tuesday, 19th November.